Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey, bosses, this is Johnny, and welcome to episode 229 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. This is a special solo episode where I answer your questions, and we're going to be talking about a lot of really interesting things that's going to help with online business, travel, and even other some personal fun things that people had questions about. So we had questions ranging from how to find the best apartments and Airbnbs, where to go for winter as a nomad, uh, how to keep in shape, and what my personal fitness routine is. Someone even wanted to know how tall I was. Someone else wanted to know uh, more about Tbilisi, Georgia, about investing, about finances and profit, about you know what failures have taught me, uh, about productivity and how to stop procrastinating. So a lot of really good questions that I'm going to get into uh, in this episode. Uh, normally, we only do these solo Q&A episodes once a year, and normally it's on number 100 or number 200. So I think on episode 100 of Travel Like a Boss, we did a, a solo episode on 200 as well. But what happened is this year, I think I've only done 30 episodes of Travel Like a Boss. And I'm sorry for the people who have written in saying, where are the episodes? Why are not, they not weekly? Why are they only coming out once every two weeks or sometimes even once a month? And the answer to that is because I've been traveling a lot and I haven't been in just nomad friendly destinations. When I'm in Chiang Mai, I meet someone every week that is successful online, had, you know, obviously travels, but also has an interesting story. And we have a lot of free time because we're just hanging out in Chiang Mai. I'm meeting them at co-working spaces, at meetups, uh, at the coffee club. So just really get easy to get to know people. People are coming through all the time. But when I'm in a place like Lithuania or I'm in Ukraine, or kind of these lesser traveled countries, even here in Georgia, it's a bit harder to find and meet nomads, especially ones that are traveling through, especially people that have interesting online businesses. So just naturally, there are less people to interview, but also I've been kind of just living and enjoying life a bit more. Uh, I don't know how many of you know this, but this podcast is really a passion project. This is a way for me to get to know really interesting people, have an excuse to sit down with them for an hour and really you know, ask them the questions that I'm curious about that I'm sure all of you are as well and be able to share it with everyone. Uh, it's great when we have sponsors of the podcast. It's great if you go on Amazon and buy one of my books. It's great if you come uh, to one of the events. But for the majority of people, like 99.9% of people, the podcast is free. And I have always wanted it to be free. I never wanted to have a paywall behind it because I really believe that having good free information about what actually works, interviewing people from all different types of businesses, but also from different countries is my way to give back to the nomad community because I, I really, really feel like I've gotten a lot from this. I've, I've personally gotten really lucky on finding the digital nomad community, being helped by some really cool people who I consider mentors now when I first got started. And the thought that I would have not met them or they would have not helped me in the beginning and I would have had to go back to the US and get a corporate job and probably have you know an okay life, but maybe not love my life, not be able to have the freedom and flexibility of traveling now and seeing the world and being my own boss, that would have crushed me. So 
the Travel Like a Boss podcast really is my way to give back. And I would love to be able to get some more sponsors to be able to help fund the show and not have to you know, lose money from it because hosting, editing, all that's pretty expensive. But even without it, honestly, it's given me so much in personal joy, in connections, and also just an excuse to even sit down with people I already know. A lot of the episodes are with the people that I already know, so I could ask them these questions over lunch. But in general, when you're hanging out with friends, you don't really want to get too deep into business or pick their brains too much uh, or to, you know, kind of ask these interview style questions if you're just casually hanging out. So sure, after a few months, you might know these things anyways, but even then, it's a lot easier when you're sitting down for an hour and you and you say, well, can you take me back from the start? How did you get started? How much money did you spend to start this business? You know, like what was the failure points? What was, how did you know it was successful? These are kind of questions that people are happy to answer on a podcast, but it's a little bit strange to ask over dinner, um, especially when they're already your friend. So I'm very happy I have this podcast. I'm happy I'm able to share it with you. If you like the show, do me a huge favor and rate it on iTunes. I know it's a pain in the butt to do, but I know it's possible. So please go open the iTunes app, search for Travel Like a Boss Podcast, and leave this podcast a five-star rating if you like the show. If you don't have iTunes, please just tell a friend about the show, screenshot it, you know, however you want to share it. But let's jump straight into the first question, which is actually a voice recording by Marty McLeod. Hi, Johnny. This is Marty McLeod from Alpharetta, Georgia, near Atlanta. So I actually have two questions. First is, uh, what are the things that you wish you knew before you became a digital nomad? And secondly, what are the biggest pieces of advice you give to somebody who's considering pulling the trigger and doing the same? Thanks, and I really enjoy your website, by the way. Appreciate it. Thanks for the question, Marty. I always love it when people send in these voice clips. If any of you want to send in a voice question to be answered on the next AMA show, Ask Me Anything show, record it on your phone and send an MP3 file. Actually, send any file. I can convert any file. Send the file to media at johnnyfd.com, and I'll answer it on the next show. So with Marty's question... It's really interesting, and this actually could be a book or course by itself. I'm sure a lot of people have these Digital Nomad Academy courses that just kind of go through it all. But really, if I can go back, the only thing I really wanted to know is that it's possible. I I wanted to, I wish somebody would have told me it's not going to be easy, but things work. You just have to really work towards it, and and everything's going to have its downsides, so don't look too much into the downsides until they come up because there's always a solution for it. When I first started, Tim Ferriss was literally the only person I had ever read about who had done this. I'm sure there were some other people who have been traveling and working online before, but they didn't have books about it. They didn't have blogs about it. There was no podcast then. This was 2007. And it was scary thinking, okay, well, this one guy has done it. I don't have access to him. I think I tried emailing him. He never responded. I'm sure he's busy. He had briefly an online forum that he shut down. And if I was smart, I would have just started a four-hour work week forum, and I never did. But it was really hard to just connect with other people. And I just had to take the leap of faith thinking, well, it sounds like it could work. Let me just try it. If I was going to give people advice today, I would tell them or tell myself, it's probably better to work on your online business 
while you still have a job and you still have the comforts of home before making the move. That way you already have income coming in. So when you arrive at your new destination, you don't have to stress about starting something from scratch. That is the rational, logical thing to do. And if you can do that, do that. I've had friends who have done that. Like my friend, Chris, it took him three years to start traveling, even though I had been telling him every, every time I spoke to him, like, Hey, you got to do this. This is amazing. You, you know, you have the skills to do it. Just do it. And he just quietly worked on his online business, which was a dropshipping store off, you know, just on off hours. He was working as an analyst for a big company, but on nights and weekends, he would just work on a store and he didn't move out into Thailand or he didn't start traveling until he was making like, I think like 1500 or $2,000 a month of profit. So he had more than enough to live in cheap places like Thailand or Vietnam. But he just wanted the security of knowing I'm doing this the correct way. I have money coming in. And then when I get to a nomad destination, I can enjoy myself. I have enough to cover my costs. And then I'll have free time to scale it up, which he did. However, most people won't actually do that. Most people would fall into the slump of thinking, yeah, I want to do it. I want to do it. But because you don't have the motivation, because it's easier to fall into the trap of going out for beers every Friday night with coworkers or friends, spending the weekends, you know, recovering or even shopping. For most people, if they don't just make the jump and just say, let me just show up and try it, they're never going to do it. And I know that because that was me. And I've actually met friends who were planning on becoming digital nomads, working online while traveling. But then they would do things like buy a new motorcycle. And I knew as soon as they made that purchase, there's no way they're going to come. First, they have a new liability. They're going to have to figure out where do I store this motorcycle? How do I make the payments? What do I do with it when I'm gone? I'm going to have to keep a garage or keep a rental space. So it's going to be financially harder and also just physically harder with more things. And then second, by having that motorcycle, now they have this fun hobby that they get into where they distract themselves on the weekends and they don't really think about traveling anymore. That no, no longer is their goal. So if you haven't started and you want to plan on your escape, your nine to five escape, don't buy anything. Like literally don't buy anything. Don't even buy things to prepare you to be a digital nomad. I know it's very tempting to shop for the perfect luggage or the perfect clothes or the perfect this. Don't spend too much time doing that stuff. Just cut things out. Like don't like literally I've thought about this experiment of going to Thailand with nothing except for the clothes on my back, my passport and 500 bucks. You can buy everything here. You can literally buy a knockoff North Face backpack. You can buy 10 t-shirts. You can buy a couple pairs of shorts. You can literally, you know, you can buy fake Haviana flip-flops. You can buy everything you need for probably, you know, $200 or less. And you'll have complete backpacker (laughs) traveler outfit. Nowadays, there's things that I really like quality-wise, which I buy in the U.S., but I think it's a nice kind of thought experiment is you really don't need anything. You can literally buy your toothbrush, toothpaste, you know, whatever you need when you arrive and just not have the hassle of weighing yourself down. I think a lot of people don't realize how much your luggage weighs you down. So my advice for people, if you're going to come for the first time and the things I wish I knew before I started my journey, the first is if I am going to go to 
a digital nomad hotspot like Chiang Mai, for example, because I want to start or grow my business, I would make sure I have a visa that's good for at least three, if not six months. I would recommend everyone get the six month multiple entry tourist visa in your home country before you go to Thailand. The reason being is it's very easy to get in your home country. It is very hard, if not impossible to get once you've left and you're in Thailand because that visa will no longer be available. So then you would have to get a bunch of one month or two month visas and fly in and out all the time, which could be fun or it could just be a pain in the butt, especially if you're trying to build a business. The second thing I would get is a zero fee ATM card. If you're American, sign up for either the Charles Schaub um, brokerage account or Fidelity because their savings accounts or the checking accounts give you an ATM card that returns all ATM fees worldwide, which is amazing. So instead of getting charged $5 or more every time you want to withdraw money and also having to pay some crazy exchange rate, these cards are amazing. The caveat and a bit of warning to everyone is don't abuse it because if you're the type to only have a few hundred bucks in your account and you're withdrawing 20 bucks or $50 you know, every couple times a week and you're racking up fees and you're costing them more than you're giving them in terms of business, they're going to close your account. And this has happened to people. Instead, what you want to do is you want to either minimize the times you use it per month. If you're only using it, let's say twice a month, but you're taking out the whole, the maximum. So you're taking out 300 or 400, even $500. That $5 fee twice a month is not a big deal. They're not going to flag your account for that. If you're taking out 50 bucks 10 times a month and you're costing them $50 in fees and your balance is low and you're not investing in any of their stocks or uh, accounts, they're going to look at you like a liability and they will just send you a letter saying you're no longer welcome here. So my advice, you know, think of it as they're doing you a favor because they really are and don't abuse the system. The second thing I would get is a no foreign transaction fee credit card or just double check the ones you have now to make sure there's no foreign transaction fees. A lot of Americans have something like the city double cash card, which is a great card in the US. You get 2% back on everything, but it also comes with a 3% foreign transaction fee. So anytime you use that card outside of the US, it's costing you 3%, which is insane. Uh, I wrote a blog post on johnnyfd.com recently about the best credit cards and what I personally carry. If you can get the new Apple card, that's foreign transaction free. The Quicksilver, it's a good card. Chase Sapphire Reserve, they're, they're all foreign transaction f- free. If you are from outside of the US, just Google the name of your country and you know best travel credit card or foreign transaction free credit card or no uh, ATM fee credit card. And I guarantee there's something. I, th- I think a lot of non-Americans just assume they can't get these cards, so they just give up. But there, I guarantee there are options. Off the top of my head, for Europeans, especially for UK residents, the Revolut card, it returns $200, um, uh, it lets you withdraw $200 a month uh, or 200 pounds a month in in cash from ATMs and without any fees. That's great. And they have bigger plans as well. Other things that I would have done before I came are things like set up either a Google Voice, uh, Google Fi, or some kind of... Uh, plan where I can receive SMS or uh, basically text messages on my phone or through email 
while I'm in another country. This is really important for two-factor authorization. So if you need to get into your bank accounts or confirm your identity, you need to be able to get a text message when you're abroad. Google Voice is the one of the few online services that actually works through email. I really like it. Uh, Google Fi is a plan where you can spend you know 10 or 20 bucks a month, keep your number, and get text messages to that local number. It's really good, um, especially if you have a phone that has dual SIMs. I think T-Mobile probably does the same. The problem is if you're spending $40 a month for this you know, super slow T-Mobile service, it's not really worth it because in a lot of countries like in Thailand or in Eastern Europe, for $5 or $10 or $15, you can have a really fast 4G uh, like data. So it's not really worth keeping that old number, but you have to have access to two-factor, so your SMS. Now, the, the other two things you could put off uh, especially if you're not making that much money yet. But I wish what I, I would have done is I had it in my back of my mind, so I would have done it sooner. But as soon as you're making, you know, let's say even $4,000 or $5,000 a month, if you're living in a high-tax state like California or even any state that has income tax, move. You know, if you're not actually living in the U.S. anyways, why would you pay California 8 or 10% of your income every year if you're not even living there and you're not taking advantage of the services. And it's the same if you're Australian or from the UK or from Europe. Take advantage of these these tax, not even loopholes, they're just basically tax plans where you're literally not using their services. You don't need to, you don't need to be paying them. I paid California tax for five years, even when I started making money and I literally was not living there. I would go home to visit for a few weeks and finally, I made the move. I moved to Texas, got my Texas driver license, a um, an address, moved all my stuff there. And from that easy move that took me a few days, I, I saved probably $8,000 a year for the last couple of years, sometimes even more. For people outside of the US, it's usually even easier. For Americans, we have to be out of the country for 11 months of the year to qualify for some of these tax savings. For most other countries, including Canada, you just have to be out of the country for six months and one day, so more than half the year. So definitely explore these. We have a talk on the Nomad Summit YouTube with Grace Taylor that explains the UX tax laws better than any $500 consultation bill. So we're really, really lucky to have had her and also to have recorded that. Just search for Nomad Summit Grace Taylor or Nomad Summit Tax on YouTube and you'll find it. The last two tips that I wish I would have known earlier is I wish I would have started traveling with carry on only much sooner. My life is so much easier, so much more free and so much cheaper now that I have less stuff. And I also realize that living as a minimalist, I'm not sacrificing anything. I really thought by having things and being prepared would make me happier. It doesn't. Having less stuff, having just kind of the bare essentials, but also have, knowing that if I really need, I can buy a sweater, right? If I really need, I can buy this. You know, I can buy coffee. I don't need to make my own stuff all the time. It has made my life so much easier. So now I literally carry a 60 liter bag that's soft. So it actually fits into even the kind of stricter carry-on places. And my life has become so much easier. So I highly recommend watching my video, go on johnnyfd.com and search for luggage, search for carry-on only, read how I've finally went from 
I think having the maximum allowance, which is in the US, for US airlines, it's insane because they know Americans carry a lot. I used to carry two giant roller luggages, not those carry-on luggages, but those family size ones. And they used to be so full. I think I used to have more than 50 pounds, more than 25 kilos in each one, sometimes even 60 pounds. And they wouldn't even fit inside the taxi. I remember going to Thailand with my cousin and because we both had so much luggage, we had to take two separate cabs. And it's now that I think about it, it's so stupid because we were only there for three weeks. What did we really need? It just makes me feel silly how we normally travel that we think we need 20 pairs of, you know, of changes of clothes or like six pairs of shoes. When in reality, we end up wearing the same flip-flops, the same three t-shirts, the same pair of shorts every day. And the last thing that I would recommend to someone just starting out is have a plan in the beginning. Don't feel bad. Don't feel like you have to be a digital nomad to travel. If you have money saved up, if you have income coming in and you don't need to work right away, you just want an escape from the corporate life, from your life back home, and you want to just travel and enjoy yourself, don't feel like you have to you know, be in one place and start a business right away. Allow yourself just to travel for six months or a year, even two years. Don't make the mistake that most backpackers make and stretch and live as cheaply as possible, see as many places as possible just, just to check off the list, run out of money, and then be stuck in a bad situation where you have to go home and work a crappy job. Have a little bit of foresight. So three months or six months before you run out of money, before you burn yourself out, you go back to Chiang Mai, you go back to a nomad hub and you work on your business. Or do what I did and find a passion or a hobby, whether it's Muay Thai, kickboxing, you know, MMA, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, or scuba diving. You know, whatever it is, it could be dance, it can be singing, it can be, you know, rock climbing, whatever it is, just do that. Enjoy the crap out of it because how often are you going to be able to work as a dive master or work as a rock climbing guide or work as a hiking guide and be able to go to the most amazing places in the world with cool people and be able to live this dream, you know, as a ski instructor or as a, you know, like mountaineer for six months or even two years, do it. That that was the some of the best years of my life. I will never regret the time I spent living on different remote islands for three months at a time, traveling the world all around Asia, from Borneo to Thailand to all the different islands, over all the way out to the Caribbeans. It was seriously some of the best years of my life. I'm so happy that I wrote about all of it in 12 Weeks in Thailand, The Good Life and the Cheap. You can find the book on Amazon or at 12weeksinthailand.com. And if you want to do me a huge favor, if you've bought the book or you buy the book, please leave a review on Amazon, you'll look and you'll see that all of the, you know, the first 80 reviews are all four and five stars because it really is a good book. It's about how to live cheaply, how to follow your passions, how to make that move. However, in uh, earlier this year, I think around December or January, I got attacked by this MOM pyramid scheme company for calling them out. It's called American Serving Americans. And when I found them, I was like, this seems so shady. I'm sure this is a pyramid scheme but they disguise themselves as a charity. So I called them out. I wrote a blog post about them. And then the the founder of it, Dave Aspie, he wrote me saying, hey, if you attack us, we're gonna attack you. 
he's like, I'm going to send all my MOM kind of cult members to write one-star reviews of your book. And I was tempted to delete that review, the, the blog post about them. Because, you know, obviously I don't want to get financially hurt or have my reputation messed up. But I was like, you know what? Screw this guy. Like, he's taking advantage of these senior citizens and it's posing as the modern day, you know, MLK. And I was like, screw this guy. And he did it. He he sent like 50 one-star reviews, which really hurt the book sales organically because people see it and they're like, oh, has all these one-star reviews. But if you want, read the book yourself. And also look at the first 80 reviews. It's It really is a good book. It's it's a very different than who I am today. But I'm happy I wrote it because it encapsulates what it's like when you're, let's say, in your early 20s or you just start traveling and it's scary. And, and once you have the freedom, all you want to do is party, meet girls, go to, you know, different islands, go scuba dive, live cheaply, do Muay Thai. It, it's one of those parts of my life that I'm very happy that I wrote down and documented because there's a very good chance that you or someone you know is in that stage of your life and you want to do that for a few years. I'm not saying you should do that forever. I've grown out of it or I've evolved uh, or gotten older. But at the same time, I do not regret those years. It was such a fun part of my life and I highly encourage everyone to explore and do what you want to do for a few years before you feel like you need to start a business. But when you're ready to move on, uh, let's take a listen to the next question. This is Vadim from Canada. Hey, Johnny, this is Vadim. I'm recording this in Toronto. Uh, Thank you so much for taking our questions today. It's a real privilege to get uh, your insight, especially from someone who's so well-traveled. My question is is twofold. Uh, uh, I'm currently saving up to go... Uh, traveling next year, I'm thinking about traveling for six to 12 months, uh, starting my trip in uh, uh, somewhere in Eastern Europe, um, listening to some of your podcasts, you mentioned that Bulgaria or Ukraine would seem like uh, good places to have a home base um, in terms of the cost of living and just the access to uh, the neighboring countries. So my question is, um, assuming that I didn't want to work um, while I was traveling, I have some some investments that I that I have here, and also some passive income coming in. Um, but assuming I wanted to live on savings, uh, what would you say would be the monthly budget? And also, what countries would you recommend seeing? Uh, so perhaps some countries in Eastern Europe, and then if I was heading east. Uh, through Russia and making my way down to Southeast Asia. Um, what kind of, uh, what, what places would you stop at? And again, how much money would you budget per month, assuming more or less like a frugal type of uh, type of uh, lifestyle, uh, traveling for 6 to 12 months? So thanks again. Love the shows, uh, both Invest Like a Boss and Travel Like a Boss podcast. Um, you and have done a great job with those. So thank you so much uh, for taking our question. questions. Hey, Vadim, that was a really good question. I think a lot of people have something similar in their heads where they want to just travel, and but they also want to be part of this kind of nomad uh, community. So I answered part of your question in the last 10 minutes, but just kind of recap uh, for you specifically, if you already have money coming in, 
especially, you know, or if someone's on, on savings, don't worry about being a in nomad friendly hotspots right now. Figure out what your goal is. If your goal is to just have as much fun as possible, to learn a new language, to to fulfill a you know passion or hobby, or to even find your passion or hobby, figure out what that is. And it could be, hey, you know, I'm young, I'm single, I just want to party, I want to meet hot girls, or hey, I just want to rock climb every day, I want to go to the best you know uh, nature de- destinations. Don't lie to yourself. Just be honest with yourself because we're very fortunate that we're able to actually do what we want to do. Now, also remember that hobby might change. You know, you might halfway through realize, you know what, it's it's kind of a pointless, you know, game to just go around and party in places or drink every night or just to meet girls. But at the same time, get that out of your system. Enjoy yourself and figure out, you know, a plan. So uh, in your specific situation, you don't need to have nomad friendly hotspots if you're not planning to work. What I would recommend is something called slow travel, but more kind of backpacker meets, you know, hybrid verse, you know, and um, it kind of like almost in between what a digital nomad and a backpacker does. So the problem with traveling fast is you get burnt out and you never really see anything. The problem with traveling very slow and getting, let's say, an Airbnb for one or two months in each place is you actually don't have that much to do Monday through Friday unless you are working on a business. So what I would recommend is find something that really that you want to do in each place. So whether it's you know doing some type of sport, for me it was Muay Thai kickboxing. For you, you know, it might be cycling, rock climbing, and hiking, trekking, whatever it is. And then find home bases and say, okay, I'm gonna stay in this city for a month to do this, then I'll move to the next city for a month to do this. The reason why it's so much better to stay in places for a month at a time versus a few days or even a week at a time is it ends up being much cheaper to get monthly accommodation, whether it's on Airbnb or locally, than it is to stay in hotels or short-term accommodation. If you're staying in a hostel for a few nights, you know, it's fine, you know, it's cheap, but then you lose your kind of sense of privacy. It gets tiring to not to have a, a really place of your own. So that's kind of the downside. As far as budget, if you're staying in hotels and you're doing tours and you're moving a lot, you can accidentally spend a lot of money. I remember the first month I was in Thailand, I spent something like $3,000, which sounds insane. And as a digital nomad now, or as a backpacker, you look at it and think, wow, how did you even spend that much? But as a tourist, it is very easy. If you're if you're staying in hotels that cost $75 a night, even that times 30 is like $2,000 or something. You know, if you're only eating at kind of touristy restaurants, it ends up being very expensive. Doing package tours, doing, you know, excursions that cost $100 or $150 every time you do it. So as far as your plan, I do love Eastern Europe, but some places like Bulgaria, there's not really a big reason to be there unless you want to be part of, you know, the nomad scene in Bansko, for example. I guess unless you want to ski in the winter or if you just want to sightsee, but it's kind of a tricky situation you're in because you're kind of right in the middle of wanting to travel slowly and cheaply, but at the same time, not wanting to actually be in any one place to for any 
given a reason. So my advice to you would be find your reason, find your why, find out, figure out what you really want. And if all you want is to actually see a bunch of cool places, then allow yourself to do so. You know, uh, an easy hack for that would be loosely plan on a trip with highlights that you want to see. But then instead of just moving every other day, like most backpackers do, give yourself a week or two weeks in each place. Really take your time, take days off to, you know, uh, edit photos, create videos, or find some kind of side hobby. I really think that backpackers that just kind of move around all the time always end up either burning themselves out, partying and drinking way too much, and then not really having much to show for it besides some photos that they don't even remember taking (laughs) because they're moving so fast. I really, really love spending a day in between each tour to write a blog post or edit photos and upload photos. So even if you don't do it as a form of income, do it as a hobby and give yourself an excuse to you know, go to a nice coffee shop, go to a co-working space or anti-cafe or have a nice Airbnb to work out of and spend every other day not doing something touristy. So speaking of looking for accommodations, we have two questions about Airbnb and finding accommodations. The first comes from Helgi Ice, who says, hi, this is Helgi from Toronto. What are your travel plans for this winter and how do you look for accommodation in those countries you plan to travel to? Besides Airbnb, would you give suggestions on what to look at and where to go looking for accommodation? Thanks for all the positives you bring to life. Cheers. Thank you very much, Helgi. That was a very nice question. Uh, On to the first part first. For winter, I love warm places and I probably haven't experienced a real winter in more than 10 years. A lot of people don't realize, but San Francisco is actually very cold in the winter. And my parents' house that I grew up in and I lived in for 18 plus years is so uncomfortably cold because there's it's an old house without you know proper insulation. We don't have central heating. And to make it worse, our kind of uh, power line that our, our wiring is so old that if I try to plug in a electric heater, it pops the entire system because I think the amperage is not high enough to support both <laughs> an electric heater as well as anything else. So if you turn on the microwave, if you turn on a light, <laughs> it just pops. And to make it worse, to reset the breaker, I have to put on my jacket, go outside into the garage where it's freezing, flip it, and then go back inside. So growing up with that, I really hated winters. And the thing about winters in San Francisco is it doesn't get cold enough where it snows or you'll risk freezing to death, but it gets cold enough where you wish you could just freeze to death because let's say it drops down to plus 10 or plus 12 Celsius, which I think is you know 40 or 50 uh, Fahrenheit. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't snow, but it's so cold that with, you know, and if you're in an uninsulated house, you literally have to wear a winter coat indoors. My parents would always just say, like, yeah, just put on more clothes. And as an Asian household, we also really like fresh flowing air. So they would even leave the windows slightly open to have a breeze come through. And I hated it. And that's why first I moved to Southern California, where it's nicer in the winters. But then I moved to Thailand and I said, I never want to experience winter again. 
10 years later, I realized I like having seasons. Uh, I like having the option of not having to sit through a winter again. But at the same time, it's kind of nice to experience a little bit of cold. So this year I was in Ukraine just for the tail end of winter where it literally got down to plus one, almost freezing. And I loved it because unlike the US or, uh, well, not US, unlike San Francisco and California, they are prepared for the winter. So that even the old buildings have, you know, insulation, double pane windows, central heating. So indoors, you're always toasty. You're always fine. And then when you go outside, you're prepared. Your body's warmed up. You put on your puff jacket and your coat and your hat and you walk outside. And in April, it was still kind of, it was starting to get sunny. So even though it was plus seven or like, you know, 40 degrees Celsius, I mean, Fahrenheit, you're like, oh, this is actually pretty nice. So I don't know where I'm going to go this winter, 2020. Actually, I do. I'll be in Thailand. Um, my travel plans for the rest of the year. Right now, I'm in Georgia, the Republic of Georgia. And then I will be going to Prague for the Dropship Lifestyle Retreat for members of Anton's Dropship course. Uh, I'll be speaking there. And then I'll be in California to visit my friends and my family for a few weeks. Then to Vegas for the Invest Like a Boss conference, probably the after party. We might actually have the conference in Los Angeles this year. But you can go to investlikeaboss.com to see deal details for that. And then... I'm actually going to be in Mexico for two months. I've always wanted to visit Mexico. The weather's great. The food's great. People are friendly. It's close to the U.S. Really easy visas for Americans. I think we get six months on arrival and, and no one really checks. So this year, I'm going to be living in Playa del Carmen, which is a nomad hotspot down there. And we're going to be doing the Nomad Summit in Cancun, Mexico, which is where the airport is. So if you can make it out in October... Go to nomadsummit.com. You can get tickets there. It's going to be a really cool conference. We've had five of them now, mostly in Chiang Mai, Thailand, but last year in Vegas. And this year, we're probably going to have a few hundred people, probably 200 plus people come down to Mexico, come to Cancun to you know, scuba dive, snorkel, hang out on the beach, as well as learn. We've had, we actually have some really, really cool speakers lined up already. A lot of people that are crushing it on uh, places like YouTube making over six figures. Uh, we have really good marketers coming and just, it's a great day of learning f what actually works today and not, you know, what worked two years ago uh, from people who have actually been successful with it. We've had, we're going to have cool workshops. Uh, we even have the founder of Safety Wing, which is uh, the travel insurance company for nomads, I think the world's first travel insurance for nomads coming. And we're going to be partnering with Selena, the, the cool, cool living spot. So check it out, nomadsummit.com. But after Mexico, I'll be in Thailand again because I really love Thailand in the winters from November, December, January, February. Chiang Mai, Thailand is the best place in the world. The weather is amazing. It doesn't get too hot, doesn't get too cold. The air is really good before the burning season starts in. March, sometimes end of February. So for winter, I would definitely be in Thailand. I highly recommend Chiang Mai for every single person. And that's why we have the Nomad Summit in Chiang Mai every January. So this year it's going to be the weekend of January 18th. This is going to be our fifth year in Chiang Mai during it. So it's going to be the January 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th. And we're going to have some 
events afterwards as well. So go to nomadsummit.com, click on Chiang Mai 2020 for the details of that. But yeah, highly recommended. Uh, now let me actually read the, the second question because it's also about, well, I guess the fourth question, uh, also about Airbnb uh, before I answer that part of it. So the next question comes from Bruce Devenal, who asks, Greeting Johnny, my wife and I have been following you for several years now and really enjoy your perspectives and motivation to succeed. We are actually living in Chiang Mai for two years and left Thailand for good in March. My question is, since you use Airbnbs for almost all your accommodation, what do you do when you get to a place that you're unhappy with? Perhaps it was misrepresented in the photos and the description, bad bed, whatever. It's one thing if you are there for maybe one week. However, it's another thing if you booked for a month. We are traveling full-time now and have had some surprises with Airbnb and just wondering if you have any suggestions to minimize the possibility of bad experiences before you book. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the question, Bruce. I think this is something a lot of people worry about. And to be fair, it is something good to worry about because Airbnb's cancellation policy is really terrible for long-term accommodations. I think there's actually a huge market for a competitor at Airbnb just for monthly rentals. First off, the inventory for Airbnb is pretty bad sometimes for monthly rentals because if someone had booked one random weekend or even one day for that month, you can't book that entire month. And second, the fact that if you cancel, you lose the money for the entire month in most cases, or if you show up and it's not a good place, you lose that entire month's rent, which is insane. But you are right. I do stay in Airbnbs most of the year. And I guess to answer the previous question as well, it really depends on the city and even the country I'm going to, whether I book under Airbnb or I try to book locally. In Chiang Mai, I, um, I, I've never booked Airbnb or in Thailand. I've never booked Airbnb because there are so many great options of both serviced apartments, which have monthly rates, as well as just normal apartments that are basically long-term executive apartments or suites. The Thai culture, and this is one of the reasons why people love Chiang Mai so much, are all apartments or most apartments are month to month. They're all furnished, which is kind of a strange thing when you think about it. When you buy an apartment in the US or anywhere in the world, it comes with a kitchen, but nothing else. In Thailand, it always comes with everything you need. I mean, literally furniture, a bed, you know, a TV, a couch, all the lights. Sometimes it comes with all the plates and everything as well. So it's, it's kind of a, a weird concept. But that's also why people love Chiang Mai so much is you can just show up and you can have a place for a month. In Chiang Mai, Airbnbs are always overpriced. So you can basically just call ahead, email ahead sometimes, find places online or show up and stay in a hotel for a few nights while looking on the ground. And that's usually what I do. The problem is... A lot of people just come for high season. They just come for January. And then they complain that it's hard to find a place. Well, it's your own fault. If you came in November, you can find a three-month place really easily because there's not that many people yet. So there's always ways to do it. Airbnb in Thailand is kind of a waste of money. I found that in some other countries as well. Uh, but in some places, there's not really any other options. Like in Ukraine, for example... Even my local Ukrainian friends will use Airbnb if they're staying in a different city for a month or even a short time because the local market is not set up for monthly rentals. Everything is six months to a year. There are places that rent per night, but in my 
experience, the place that charge per night almost never give a good enough discount or any discount for a monthly rental and ends up being overpriced. My suggestion is whatever city you're moving to, just Google it. So, you know, Google Kiev, Ukraine monthly rental or, you know, Warsaw, Poland monthly rental and see what comes up. If you can find a, a monthly service apartment, a monthly apartment contract, the terms are usually better than Airbnb. Airbnb to me, I love Airbnb, but it's always kind of my last resort. Now, if you are going to rent on Airbnb to answer both your questions, the best way to make sure you're renting a good place and you don't get screwed is first book ahead of time, one or two months ahead if you can. That way you have selection. The problem is if you wait until a few weeks before, a lot of places that you could have booked for a month now have random days in that month that are blocked off so you don't have as a selection. So you might get stuck with a place with no reviews or bad reviews. If you wanna make sure you get a place that isn't going to disappoint you, make sure it has at least five reviews. Read all the reviews, read the kind of nuances and see, kind of read between the lines and see if it's a place that you're actually gonna stay at. If you stay at a place with no reviews, you're taking a huge gamble. It's almost not worth doing unless you have no other options. And I've done it before. And to be honest, I've never actually had a problem that was unsolvable. I've stayed at a lot of Airbnbs and I've had situations where the bed was, I, I just could not sleep in the bed. It was so terrible. I messaged my host in the middle of the night saying, I cannot sleep on this for a month. And this, we need to replace this bed. It was literally completely broken. It was really bad. The way I solved it was I, First off, I tried to fix the problem myself. Always try to fix the problem if, if you can. So I took off the sheets and it was really bad. It was broken. It was like, it looked really disgusting. So I took a photo of it, but then I tried to solve it. I flipped the mattress, put it back on the sheets and tried to sleep on it. And if that solved the problem, then everything would have been fine. Unfortunately, the other side was worse. So what I did was I sent those photos through Airbnb's messaging app make sure you do that so you have a paper trail. Don't send it through WhatsApp or through anything else. And you can just be very fair. Don't be emotional. Don't write crazy long messages. Be very fair to the point. That way Airbnb support can see you are trying to solve the situation. And if it's unsolvable, they'll be on your side. So I wrote the message saying, hey, I'm really sorry, but this, I, this mattress is completely broken. I cannot sleep on this for a month. Here's photos of it, it's damaged. But then to be rational, I asked myself, how much did I pay for this rental? And it was something pretty low. And I was like, okay, let me incentivize the host. I don't want them to get screwed. They're probably not making very much money from this. So I said, I'm sorry, I, this mattress is, is broken. I can't sleep on it. Uh, but if you can replace the mattress tomorrow, by the end of day tomorrow, I will send you another $50. And it doesn't, to me, it's not a big deal to send someone $50 for somewhere more comfortable to sleep for a month. The The rental of the monthly apartment was 500, so it was 10%. But they were happy because they knew that now they have $50 to go buy a mattress. And maybe the mattress cost more. In the US, you might have to offer them $100 just because costs are good or more expensive. But he was very happy. He's like, yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for being fair. I'll, I'll replace the mattress tomorrow. And all of a sudden, I had a brand new mattress that was very comfortable to sleep at for a month. He's happy because that $50 paid for probably half that mattress in, in Ukraine, where it's really cheap. 
So it was a win-win situation. We didn't have to get Airbnb involved, anything. Usually other mistakes that uh, that, that have happened. Uh, actually, when I was traveling in Lithuania with Sam Marks, we had situations where we showed up. And even though it was supposed, supposedly he had booked a place with two or even three beds, we show up and it's one bed that we have to share. And we ended up having to cancel it and finding, we found a hotel, but it's also, I looked at the listing and the problem is unless they are very specific for what they're offering and you see photos of each bed, you can't trust it. So don't lie to yourself, look for evidence, message them and say, can you show me a photo of this, of both beds? And if they can't provide it, then book something else. So this is kind of the way that you prevent mistakes is do your due diligence, book ahead of time so you have options, make sure they have reviews. If you are really particular, only rent from places that are Airbnb super hosts because you know that not only do they care, but also they have a reputation to, to protect. And if things go wrong, be fair. And you know sometimes you have to pay a bit more to solve it. Uh, here in my Airbnb this time in Tbilisi, Georgia, which I really love, we actually had an issue. I first off, the uh, curtain fell off, so I, ha- so I sent them a photo showing, like, hey, your the curtain completely fell off the track, and it was it like fell off the wall. Maybe it was slightly my fault, where I maybe pulled it too, a little bit too hard, but it w- I wasn't drunk and you know ripping it off the wall or anything. But then I also scheduled a cleaning. And in some places they will clean for free, in some places they won't. And they wanted to charge 50 lari, which is maybe $15 or more, $17, which is very cheap in the US, but here it's actually a little bit expensive. But I was like, okay, it's fine, let me just clean it. And she actually wrote back saying, hey, the place was extremely like messy and dirty. I hope you plan on doing another cleaning before you leave. And at first I got upset saying like, why would I do another cleaning? I'm moving out in 10 days. You know, you're, it's your responsibility to clean the place when I leave. You know, it's not even that bad. It was like, it was definitely messy, but a lot of it was just because I left all the windows open. So there's a lot of like dust and dirt everywhere and like things flying in from outside. But I calmed down, I was rational about it. And I looked at my receipt and I realized they actually didn't charge a cleaning fee when I booked it. I, I just paid the nightly rental as well as a service fee, which goes Airbnb and doesn't even go to them. And I wrote back saying, Hey, you know what? I see you didn't charge me a cleaning fee, so I will pay you another 50 lari when I leave for you to clean the place. She's happy. I'm happy. Everything works out. So I think a lot of it is just being rational and not getting too emotional about it, doing doing the, as much due diligence as you can to protect yourself, but not overstressing about it. Uh, we had a question from Matt McCabe that asks, ideal neighborhoods in Tbilisi, Georgia and Vilnius where you suggest staying, that is good locations with cafes, restaurants and parks. So I've actually written guides for um, for Vilnius now on johnnyfd.com and I'm gonna write one for Tbilisi soon. So just go on the blog, read those. I do maps, I write everything out. And that's why I write these guides. It's because there's so much information to share. So definitely just read that and check it out. A couple fun questions from the Travel Like a Boss Facebook group. If you wanna join it, go to Facebook, look for Travel Bosses or go on travellikeabosspodcast.com and you can find it somewhere in the menu. Kendrick Molina asks, how do you manage your finances and determine profit to pay yourself? Do you have a system in place that you can share? 
So it's a bit hard when you are a solopreneur and you basically just pay yourself whatever you want. But what I've been doing, which has worked really well, is I basically just figured out what is the max I could pay myself without uh, needing to pay extra taxes. And for the last couple of years, it's been about $103,000 a year. So I divide that by 12 and I say, okay, I'm going to pay myself $8,500 a month. And that way, all the money kind of goes um, through my LLC and I'm paying myself less than the maximum to still qualify for foreign earned income exclusion. And it's all worked out. However, things have changed now where if you keep money in your in a foreign account, you have to pay fees to uh, expatriate, repatriate them back in the U.S. anyways. So things have kind of changed a bit. Um, but in general, the way that you want to pay yourself is you want to try, and, and at least what I do is you want to try to have a, as little paper profits as possible. Run everything through your business. If you're going to travel somewhere, make sure it's technically a business travel reason. Have a conference set up, you know, as the reason why you're going there, you know, have a meeting or an event. So for example, uh, I'm going back to the US from Georgia, which is, you know, not a cheap flight. I'm flying premium economy, but the the purpose of that trip is for the Invest Like a Boss conference. A side benefit is I'm visiting friends and my parents, but I'm able to write off that trip because I'm going for that conference. And you can do this whether you're hosting a conference or you're just an attendee. Now to go to Mexico, I've always wanted to go to Mexico. I've always wanted to go to Playa del Carmen, but the way that I write off the flight and a lot of the travel expenses is I'm going for the Nomad Summit in Cancun. So then I fly down to Cancun, I stay in a hotel, that's for the Nomad Summit, that gets written off. I happen to stay there longer to explore Playa del Carmen and go scuba diving, but that's a side benefit. And then to Thailand, <laughs> from the US back to Thailand, that's another uh, international flight that's expensive, especially if I'm gonna fly business class, which I try to do on really long flights so I can have a lay down seat. And the purpose of that is even though, yeah, I love going to Thailand in the winters, but because I am going to the Nomad Summit, I get to write that off as a flight. So uh, when you pay yourself, make sure you pay yourself last in this case. Try to run everything through an expense and have as little paper profits as you can. And that way you can pay your you can have less than $100,000 a year in actual profit, and that way you don't have to pay all these taxes. Uh, I know it gets a little bit complicated, but you can watch the talk by Grace Taylor on Nomad Summit's YouTube channel for more information, uh, and hope that works for you. All right, up next we have a question from Chris Cartwright. Hi Johnny, this is Chris Cartwright from Nottingham, England, first-time investor, been making money on the side from dropshipping high ticket items. My question is, can I invest in Vanguard if I live in the UK or do I invest in a UK equivalent? Keep up the great podcasts and thanks for getting me into dropshipping. Originally found you from an e-commerce podcast that you were a guest on years ago and then started following you. So yeah, big thanks, uh, Chris. Thanks for writing in. And I'm really, really happy to hear that you're doing well with dropshipping in England. It's one of those countries where I've always been kind of hesitant to recommend dropshipping from the UK because I know it works for some people and then some people complain about, you know, like taxes or setting up a company and I'm not from there. So it's really hard for me to say, 
like oh yeah it's fine i've done it because i'm not from england but it's always nice to hear when people will figure that thing those things out and here's the thing about drop shipping is basically if people buy things online and other people have figured out a way to sell things online drop shipping is really just a fulfillment model where instead of first having someone ship you the the inventory to your warehouse or to Amazon's warehouse, you're just having them ship it directly to the customer. So there's not really any reason why starting a dropshipping store would necessarily be harder than dropping any other or starting any other kind of online business where you sell physical items. So I'm very, very happy. I'm assuming uh, you signed up for Anton's dropshipping course uh, because you mentioned high ticket drop dropshipping. Uh, if you guys want to check out the course that I took and the one I recommend, it's AntonMethod.com. I know it works in the U.S. People have met and been successful over like Australia, especially a lot of like European countries like Sweden or Norway or Scandinavia, um, Holland, Germany. It's and now the U.K. Uh, as well. So I think it works in most places where you can buy things online. But anyways, uh, congrats on making enough money to start investing. So. Uh, the question is, how do I invest in Vanguard? And if you guys aren't familiar with Vanguard, it is a company that has low-cost index funds that you can invest in that tracks the entire U.S. stock market. The reason why I like it so much is the fees are very, very low. And if you follow long-term investing, you don't need to pick individual stocks or watch the stock market. You can kind of just assume that over time, the stock market grows and will continue to grow around 8% a year, even with its ups and downs. The reason why Vanguard is so good is the fees are so low, they're like 0.025%, while a mutual fund might charge you 2% or even 1%, which doesn't sound like a lot of money. You're like, oh, it's only 1% fees. But what it is, is it's charging you 1% fees on a maximum of 8% gain, or let's say you can make 10% a year, they're basically taking away 10% of your profits, which is a lot. Because if you can only make 8% a year and they take away one of those, now you're making 7% a year. And it's a big difference. It doesn't seem like it the first year, but when you do the math and you go over 20 or 30 or 40 years until you retire, it ends up costing you tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So if you wanna know more, you can read one of the uh, finance books. Maybe an easy one is Tony Robbins' Unshakable or Money Master the Game. Uh, or take a listen to the Invest Like a Boss podcast where we talk about index funds. So as far as should you invest, can you invest in Vanguard? Yes, there is a Vanguard, probably.co.uk. I think Vanguard has one in Australia and like many other countries. Just Google Vanguard in the name of your country. But the second part of the question is, do you invest in the UK market or the US market? That's a tricky one because... Most people invest in the U.S. stock market because it's the biggest one. And our companies are international. So even though, for example, Apple is technically a U.S. company, it's based in Ireland. Most big U.S. companies are international. So we are we kind of touch the world anyways. While the U.K. stock market is much smaller. Personally, I invest mostly in the U.S. stock market, but I also put about 20% in uh, international markets as well as emerging markets. So it's completely up to you if you feel like the U.S. is enough uh, to invest in or you want to diversify into other countries. 
it's really hard because if someone from Japan had only invested in Japanese stocks, you know, for their whole life, they'd be really screwed right now. So and there's a chance that 10, 20 years from now, the U.S. is no longer going to be the powerhouse and we're going to be, you know, economically like Japan. I don't think that's going to happen because the difference between the U.S. and these other countries is we are so big that if we go down, we're probably going to drag down everyone with us. And I think that's why it's still safe to, to invest in the U.S. Uh, but I also like to diversify because I do believe that a lot of these emerging markets, these other countries are going to catch up as well. So if you want to know more, take a listen to Invest Like a Boss. All right, so the last two questions are really going to be random and fun questions. Uh, one comes from Ryan Hansen. He says, how tall are you? Sometimes I think you're a big guy, but some pictures make me think you're not. So that's actually an interesting question because I think, okay, so I am a big guy, but, uh, and, and I normally look tall. People think I'm taller than I am. And I think it's because I have good posture. My dad used to always hit me in the back if I didn't stand straight. Uh, and second, because I'm a big guy and like, uh, you know, wide and muscular, people just assume I'm tall. And I guess for an Asian guy, I'm also above average. However, Sometimes in photos, I look small because I hang out with a lot of European people who are super tall. They might be like, you know, 6'5 or 6'7. And my the last two girls I've dated, uh, the German girl and also the girl from the Ukrainian girl, have both been taller than me. They were both about 5'11. And I'm 5'10 or 5'10 and a half, depending on who's measuring. The other funny thing is in the US, I've always assumed I was 5'10 and a half, and then you round up to 5'11 because that's the norm. In Europe and other countries, nobody rounds up. They actually just say exactly in centimeters how tall they are. So when I converted 5'10 and a half to centimeters, I said I'm 178, and I would meet a girl from Germany who was also 178, but then in photos, I realized she's much taller than me. And finally, what I finally measure myself, I realize I'm not 5'10 and a half, I'm 5'10. I rounded to 5'10 and a half, and then you round up to 5'11. Because every single American does that for whatever reason, guys and girls. We always overestimate everything. Another kind of cultural part of that is if you ask an American how much money you make, they will always tell you before taxes, annual salary. So someone might say, I make 50,000 a year. I make, you know, 80,000 a year, 100,000 a year. If you ask a European, they'll always tell you monthly salary. So it's already 12 times smaller after tax. So what they actually keep, which probably actually makes more sense if you think about it. But it's also probably then a reason why it's harder for them to talk about because it's a bit more personal because they're basically telling you exactly how much they take home. While American, it's easy to throw a big number out there because it doesn't really mean anything. On the same topic, uh, Martin Arista said, asks, hey, Johnny, do you follow your own uh, fitness routines or do you ask the trainers at each gym to help you with it? Maybe something you get from the internet, nice way of training. I haven't been able to keep up my fitness on general since I went nomadic. Thanks and keep up the good work. And I think this was actually from my Instagram uh, page. It was a direct message. If you haven't followed me yet on Instagram, it's at JohnnyFDK, and I've been recently posting a lot of short videos from the gym, uh, partially to keep myself accountable, 
but also to see my form. And I've been getting a lot of really good tips from the community. So I get a lot of people who will actually watch my Instagram stories and then help correct my form. They'll say, Johnny, you need to keep your chin up a little bit when you're doing squats. Um, you know, make sure you, you know, uh, have your knees go wider or uh, your, your bench is too flat and you need to uh, arch your back a bit more. So I've been getting really good tips and it's really easy because I can look at their photo to see if uh, they look like they know what they're talking about. If they're in good shape or they're a fitness trainer, then I will take that to heart. If there are some scrawny dude who doesn't look like they work out, I might take it with a grain of salt. But uh, as far as my gym routine for the last couple months, I've been following something called the Strong Lifts 5x5. You can download the app for free it's called Strong Lifts. What I like about it is it tells you what to do each day, tells you how much weight to use. And it's just, a, it's relatively easy because basically it's five core full body lifts. I believe they call them the Olympic lifts. And you do it every other day. So, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, rest Saturday, Sunday. Next week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, rest Saturday, Sunday. So it's very, very easy to follow. You open the app, it says, okay, today these are the three exercises you're doing. You're doing five uh, reps, five sets each. Uh, here's the exact weights. You press the each button when you finish a rep and it counts down and says, if it was easy, you rest 90 seconds. Has a little like countdown that has a ding, says, please work out again. Uh, or if it was difficult, please wait three minutes. And that way you can just take a little bit longer. The way that the, the purpose of the Stronglifts app is a very, very good beginner to intermediate muscle building, foundation building um, gym exercises. It's really good for developing strength, but also core muscle and to gain muscle. And I know it works because every time I've done it, and I've done this now three times in the past, every time I've done it, I've gained probably five or 10 pounds of muscle. And it's very noticeable on my ass, which is a weird uh, thing to talk about. But when I don't lift weights, when I don't do squats, I have a very flat ass like most, you know, a lot of guys do. But as soon as I start doing it within two months, it is noticeably bigger as in my jeans are tighter. Girls, you know, will compliment it or like my girlfriend at the time will notice it and say like, how did you get all this muscle on your ass and <laughs> really know everywhere else? Like I'm already kind of muscular anyways, but it's a really big difference. So if anyone has a flat ass, whether you're a girl or a guy and you want to build, you know, a booty, <laughs> you don't have to go get implants. You can just do strong lifts. The five exercises that you alternate are going to be squats. So it's going to be back squats, uh, which works your legs and your ass. You'll have bench press, which works your chest. You'll have a barber row, which works your back. Then you'll have overhead press, which works your shoulders. And you'll have a deadlift, which works uh, kind of everything, but mainly your legs, your back, your butt. And with these five exercises, you can have a very good full body workout. You can be strong, you can build muscle, and more importantly, it's very usable muscle, which is nice. The way it works is you start with just the barbell, so it's pretty light, and you focus on good form. And what I do is, in the beginning, if I'm not sure how to do it, I'll get a personal trainer or ask a friend who does know what they're talking about, and they'll show me how to do it. I'll watch videos on YouTube, on how to do these exercises correctly, and then I'll videotape myself and then have people correct my form. And this is what I recommend for everyone getting started. And what's kind of weird about it is you always start with just the bar, so it feels very light. 
And some people might get a bit embarrassed doing these uh, exercises with no weight at all. But don't worry about anyone else at the gym. Just worry about yourself. And pretty quickly, within a few months, you're squatting your, your entire body weight. I just hit 100 kgs, uh, which is 220 pounds for my squat, which is pretty heavy. That's basically almost my body weight. I'm a little bit heavy right now, but it's what I normally weigh. What I plan to do is do this for a few more weeks until I get to maybe maximum, I don't know, maybe I'll try to get to three plates, which is 60, 80, uh, is it 60, 80, 100, 140? Wow, that's actually kind of (laughs) heavy. Maybe I won't get to uh, three plates on each side because that's that's 140 kg, like 280 pounds. But my goal isn't to be able to lift more and more and more forever because I don't really see the benefit for, for me for that. I'd rather have usable strength than just get as big or strong as possible. So what I've been doing and what I would recommend to everyone is on those off days, instead of just staying home, go to the gym anyways and go do something else. I'm a firm believer that 100% of people who just lift weights would benefit from doing yoga and 100% of people who just do yoga would benefit from lifting weights. So anyone who you know who might be very kind of skinny and weak and frail or just look kind of skinny and but they're really good at yoga, they do yoga every day, they should probably do some pull-ups. They should probably go lift some weights because adding some muscle will make them overall healthier and stronger. But anyone that you know who just lifts weights all day is a muscle, like meathead, they would definitely benefit from the flexibility and balance of doing yoga. I believe that we as humans always do kind of what's easy and what we're good at, but that's not always what we should be doing. I, I lift weights because I enjoy doing it and it's pretty easy for me. And I'm, but I'm honest with myself. I know me lifting weights is kind of the easy path. And that's why I for, force myself to do cardio sometimes and I really hate doing it. I force myself to, to uh, go on hikes or do kind of more endurance things like swimming or like mountain climbing. And also I like doing calisthenics. So on my off days, actually pretty much every day, you can see me doing pull-ups as well, just as a f- easy full body functional workout. I believe that everyone should be able to do five pull-ups, like good pull-ups with good form. It can save you, it can save your life. I mean, literally if you need to climb out of a <laughs> burning building, you need to like pull someone up. Uh, you need to like, you need to get out of a bad situation. Doing a pull-up would be able to help a lot. Being able to sprint away from something, is going to probably help you a lot too. Uh, being able to jump out of something is probably going to help you a lot as well. You know, and having kind of these basic life skills, a basic fitness skills, is probably going to help. Uh, I could be doing a lot better. Uh, the reason why I'm not in amazing shape right now is because my diet is trash. I literally eat a loaf of bread every day because it's so good here in Georgia. I eat these pastries all the time that's filled with cheese and bacon because they taste so good and they're two lari, which is sixty cents. I drink craft beer and wine a couple times a week because it's so tasty and it's so cheap. But that bread and the beer is really bad for me. The reason why I'm allowing myself to do it is because I enjoy it. And I figure if I just lift weights and I do these other exercises that it kind of balances out, it's fine. And when I feel, when when I kind of get tired of the beer and the bread, I'll lean out a, a bit again. 
And I've also been intermittent fasting, which has helped helped a lot. I think if I wasn't intermittent fasting, I would be in way worse shape. So the way that works is I have my first meal. I skip breakfast. I just have coffee. And I normally have my first meal after 2 p.m., usually 3 or even 4 p.m. And I try to have my last meal by 8 p.m. So I have a six-hour eating window, which means that I'm not eating for 18 hours. And what that allows your body to do is it allows it to completely reset. And this is how you don't become addicted to sugar or needing to eat carbs all the time uh, you know, for you to function. I used to always have to have breakfast or even have to have a bulletproof coffee in the morning, just have the calories in. Now I've changed where I don't have to eat until 2, 3, 4, sometimes even 5 p.m. And as long as I exercise and I have coffee, I'm actually okay with it. So highly recommend everyone take a look into intermittent fasting. I think it's one of those no-brainers. It saves you a lot of time and actually saves you money by not having to have breakfast all the time. And it's pretty easy because if you want to eat super healthy, like let's say you just eat vegetables and like free-range eggs, but during those six hours, you'd probably be very healthy. If you don't eat very healthy and you're eating loaves of bread and you know other kind of bad uh unhealthy things, at least you're only eating it during these few hours and your body has a chance to kind of reset as well as burn off some fat during the, the other hours you're not eating. Uh, but I don't want to get into, too much into it because I'm still experimenting it myself, <laughs> but uh, at least now I know what works. I just have to actually do it. I think with business, with travel, with with fitness, with weight loss, with diet, for most of my life, it was being confused and lost and not knowing what actually works, not knowing what is real, what is BS. So it was very hard to follow anything. Now, the problem is we have so much information that it's kind of, first off, it's hard to know what's true or not. But even when you figure out what is true, you realize, hey, it's not any easier to do. You just have to actually put in the work and follow it. So what I've learned now is most businesses work. If you listen to the 228 other episodes, all those businesses work. None of them are easy, but they all work. With you know diet and fitness, I actually have a video that on YouTube from five years ago when I was in really, really good shape called Johnny FD's Common Sense Diet. And it was really just a video that was filmed for myself when I was in really, really good shape. And I was really lean and I was muscular. I had so much energy. And basically, I had told myself, you know, this is what you did to get here zero sugar, zero carbs, zero alcohol, workout six days a week. And this is how you, you know, you're in shape. And what I realize is that's a lot of work and I'm not really enjoying myself. So even though now I know what works, it's hard to sacrifice and say, you know, I want, I want to prioritize that. But here's what I want to leave everyone with. What you've learned from this episode, as well as the other episodes on this podcast it works. It doesn't make it any easier though. Every single thing from getting in shape, building muscle, losing weight, building a business, making money, and even investing takes consistency, time, and hard work. But the payoffs are very, very good. And the payoffs are forever. And I think for most people, you'll agree that I don't mind working hard as long as I know that it's going to pay off. So I'm very happy that you found this podcast, that you found me, that you found my blog, Johnny FD. 
uh, as well as you know, you can learn from my network, from all the people that normally have on this podcast, as well as all the speakers for Nomad Summit, as well as all the people we've interviewed for Invest Like a Boss, the other podcast. I'm glad to be able to share the information on what actually works. I guarantee if you follow anything that we recommend, your life will be better. It'll work for you. I also guarantee it's going to be hard. So stay in there, keep in there. The payoff is worth it. And I hope to see all of you somewhere in the world. If you have any questions, feel free to leave a comment here on this podcast page or go to the Travel Bosses Facebook page and post something there. You can always email in your questions as well to media at johnnyfd.com if it's a voice clip. If it's a uh, normal question, I'll just save it for the next show, whenever that's going to be. And that's it for now. So thanks so much for listening and hanging out with me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you got some value out of it and hope to see you somewhere in the world. Take care. Share this episode with a friend who might be just getting started with the nomad journey and wants to learn uh, some of these tips from someone who's done it for a long time. And I hope to see all of you at the next Nomad Summit. So please go to nomadsummit.com, sign up for the email list there so you can get some info. We're going to be doing the Cancun event October 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th in Cancun, Mexico. And the Chiang Mai one has been confirmed. I just put down the deposit for it. It's going to be again at the Shangri-La Hotel in Chiang Mai, Thailand, this beautiful hotel. And it's going to be January 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th in Chiang Mai, Thailand. So hope to see all of you somewhere in the world at the next Nomad Summit. Yeah. Until then, <laughs> tell a friend about the podcast, leave a review. It helps us a lot. And I'll see you somewhere in the world. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.